Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 65. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I'll be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Before we dive into the intel chat, I just wanted to add a note for our listeners, letting them know that this show originally had a segment covering the hack in Las Vegas, the one that impacted MGM and Caesars Palace. Between recording the episode and starting this editing process, a whole bunch of information's come out about the hack, and so we've decided to pull that segment altogether. Instead, next week we're going to do a show dedicated to unwinding exactly what happened and what the impacts are. It'll make for some interesting content, and I hope you'll join us in listening. And with that, let's get on to the Intel chat. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious code, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. A big thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with us. And as always for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris. I'm doing well. Another fun day dealing with bad actors and talking about all the nefarious things that they're up to these days. But uh, I'll echo your sentiment, too. As always, y'all know week after week, I'm a huge, huge advocate of what's going on in our Intel channel. So for anyone who's been contributing in there talking and stuff like that, we thank you. We love love having those voices. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we have a lot of stuff to cover today, so uh, let's get to it. Uh, the next one up is from Securonix Threat Labs. They report that threat actors working as part of the DB hashtag jammer attack campaigns are compromising exposed MSSQL databases using brute force attacks and that they appear to be well-tooled and ready to deliver ransomware, cobalt strike, credential stealing software, and rat payloads. Across this ransomware campaign, the payload of choice appears to be a newer variant of mimic ransomware called FreeWorld. The threat actors gained access to the victim host by brute forcing an MSSQL login. Once authenticated, they immediately began enumerating the database, especially targeting other login credentials. This article goes into detail about what attackers did once they got a foothold on the host, but I think the lesson here is one we've heard before, and that is don't expose your MSSQL databases to the internet. Anything you want to add to this one, Matt? Was there anything about the attack that jumped out at you? Yeah, first off, that's a great piece of advice. Uh, don't expose your SQL databases to the internet if you don't have to. Uh, one of the interesting takeaways, and uh, one of the things that I honestly haven't talked about in quite a while, but I'm surprised to see it here, was the use of the XP underscore command shell function in this case, which is what the adversaries were using to uh, perform code execution and things like that. This is a, I'm not going to call it a legacy vulnerability, but this is something that's been around for, for quite a long time, the, the XP command shell um, functionality. It is often uh, disabled. I, should, I shouldn't say often. I think now it is disabled by default. Um, it can obviously be enabled and turned on, but the purpose of XP command shell is a very, very kind of you know tried and true technique that if it's there and adversaries have the ability to use it, that they're going to abuse it. And in this case, I, I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, and interestingly enough, and a huge, again, hat tip to the folks over at Securonix, the threat labs for putting this together for us. But once getting into the SQL server, the adversaries then went and discovered whether or not that feature was enabled and then quickly pivoted to use that to run commands on the host. I think one of the biggest takeaways here is just the sheer knowledge of how to use and abuse MSSQL um, is kind of one of the things that I read as I work through this. These are not, at least based on the reporting that we saw, 
These are not adversaries who are kind of like opportunistically feeling their way around a database to see what's there and whatnot. This is, we know exactly what we're looking for. We know exactly what to run and we're going to go right after it. And even the different commands that they ran for user creation, modification, and enumeration were just very straightforward and very put together, you know? And interestingly enough, one of like the biggest things here is the recognition, and I'm looking directly at the screenshot that uh, figure two that's in this blog post here, recommend everyone check this out, but they go through and they add their uh, compromised account, which is the media admin account. They add it to the administrators group, but they make sure to rotate through a bunch of different languages that uh, represent the administrators group. And this to me just spells and equals preparation from the adversary perspective. You know, this is not, I'm going to write something and hopefully to see if it works, right? This is, I know exactly what types of environments I'm going to be going to, or I'm going to issue blanket statements to cover them all. Because if those groups don't exist, eh, no fault, right? We'll just move on, move on to the next one. But if they do exist, I want to make sure I get added in there. And interestingly enough, Chris, I think this displays a little bit of versatility from the Windows perspective, which is there's a lot of things in Windows which are based in English, but the administrators group is one that gets represented in multiple languages and the threat actor accounted for that. When I see stuff like this, it just really speaks to the type of prep that adversaries put into what they're doing. Um, and then funny enough, Securonix team did note that uh, the adversaries preferred to switch to RDP as soon as they possibly could. And I just, I find it really funny that the adversaries have these really elaborate kind of brute forcing XP command shell based approaches, running code on database servers, so on and so forth, but then want to get to the GUI as fast as they can, because that's probably where they're more comfortable or where it allows them to kick off different parts of their attack and things like that. Everything outside of this, I think was actually pretty straightforward. Enumeration of network shares, disabling of the system firewall, looking for the files that are out there, you know, dropping in remote access tools and credential harvesting and things like that. You know, they're utilizing a W digest downgrade attack, which is something that we've seen around for years and years. XP command shell, years and years. SQL brute forcing, years and years. So in September of 2023, it's interesting to see some of these techniques pop up, but to also have this group experience such success using them. Next up, threat researchers at Morphosec are reporting a previously unknown version of the Chase malware that they have declared Chase for as it is the fourth major variant. This new version of the Chase malware has undergone major overhauls from being rewritten entirely in Python to a comprehensive redesign and an enhanced communication protocol. Additionally, it now boasts a suite of new modules that enable additional malicious capabilities. The targets of this malware are not random. It has a specific focus on customers of prominent platforms and banks. Furthermore, Chase malware isn't new to the cybersecurity landscape dating back to November 2020 when researchers from Cyber Reason highlighted its operations primarily targeting e-commerce customers in Latin America. As of this podcast recording, researchers have no conclusive statements about the threat actors working behind the malware. The article itself is not very technical, but links to a report that goes into great detail breaking down each of the modules used in the malware, and should provide lots of insight to defenders out there that are curious about this one. Did you have a chance to look at this one, Matt? I did. And this is yet another example. And I think we've probably talked about it before, Chris, of adversaries, you know, reinventing their 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 things or flexing on their scripting skills or trying new things out. Uh, you know, this one, I think this article called out that version four includes a few, you know, things you, you, you mentioned them as well. Uh, predominant shift to Python, which allows for them to have decryption and in-memory execution. They added some layers of encryption, different stealth capabilities, refined code architecture, 
uh, an adoption of WebSockets for primary communication between modules in the C2 server. I mean, if you take the word malware off the title of this blog post and you just simply replace it into another company's release notes, you'd be like, oh, this is fantastic, right? Great. You guys are doing all this stuff and making it more efficient, you know? So I don't want to give that same compliment to our adversary malware authors over here. However, I will go as far as to say that, you know, this looks to me like a typical kind of re-engineering iteration. Um, maybe, you know, and I don't know what version three was written in exactly, but maybe they wanted version three to be in Python, but they needed some time to work on their skills or they couldn't get it going, never got out of alpha. The sprint was late or whatever the development cycle may have been. And then they step back and we're like, all right, let's, let's, you know, release it for version four and here comes version four, right? And implementation of, of domain generation algorithms for dynamic resolution of the C2 server's address. I mean, if I just replace that and I say implementation of stronger host connection methods for insured transport of packets, it sounds like a network tool and it's great, which is really what's happening there. So I, I, I think, you know, this is typical with any malware family that's going through multiple iterations. This is going to be typical with any sort of engineering that you see is, is they're maturing, they're growing, or they've figured out that we as defenders have figured out what versions one through three look like, and we've written pretty strong signatures for them. So they've gone to kind of, you know, go against those or write a version of the malware that is not as easy to detect. Uh, Hat tip to the folks over at Morphosec looking through the kind of attack chain that they put together. The other interesting part here is the different modules that are associated with the malware, everything from init to, uh, let's see, uh, you know, chronode, file uploader, stealer, and things like that. That's another element I find to be pretty interesting is you've got a piece of malware, but it's got a bunch of different modules associated with it. This is 100% pure, you know, ease of engineering over here, uh, instead of having to rewrite the, let, let's say, for example, there's an issue with module six, which is the stealer, you know, there's an issue with its code or it's got a bug or something like that, right? The adversary can quickly just rewrite one module and then push that out as opposed to having to redo the entire code base. This is engineering efficiency. It's something that we all practice and do and find ways to make it easier. So, you know, very similar to adversaries knowing how we detect malware, they read our blog posts. They listen to our podcast. We also have to expect that adversaries will read our engineering podcasts and our, re our engineering blog posts and read about ways to make their code more efficient. And here they are doing it. So again, no compliments to them. But if I take out malware, it's basically a product release. That's it. Yeah, I wonder how long till we see an add-on marketplace for these different malware platforms because that's really you what never building, know. I'm right? just saying, maybe you know, we have. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's an MIAAS, a malware infrastructure as a service, where uh, you know someone's just managing different modules and provides the footing that you would need to prop up a malware campaign. You know, you never know. So, all right, this next one's an interesting one from OnLab Security Emergency Response Center or ASEC who are reporting on threat actors using phishing emails to distribute some fileless malware. The attachment consists of an HTML application file with the extension .hta, which can be used for deploying other malware like Agent Tesla, Remcos, and LimeRat. The fileless malware runs in the memory area of PowerShell without creating a file on the victim's system. The phishing email includes a bank transfer notice, which is proving to be very good at getting victims' attention and getting them involved. In addition to the email itself, there's an attachment with an ISO image embedded with a .hta script file. 
This .hta file kicks off a PowerShell command and subsequent infection. Is this innovation? PowerShell commands seem like something that should easily be caught by defenders, but fileless malware seems to be a little bit fancy. Yeah, I think this is uh, just another adversary and, and, you know, no offense to them, but all offense to them. Just another adversary who's brought together kind of a bunch of different pieces and techniques. You know, um, we've got an ISO attachment that runs an HTA that runs some PowerShell that kicks off a thing and whatnot. I think an adversary has just found a way to get in and they're utilizing bank invoice or bank transfers as their kind of lure to get the thing, you know, to get someone to click on a thing. But then other than that, it just, it, it kind of takes over, right? It, it's PowerShell requesting uh, base 64 encoded data through a C2, which is actually a DLL. The DLL runs in memory. Um, it's injected into reg ASM, which is a living off the land binary. I mean, it's, it's, you know, just, pretty run-of-the-mill normal techniques kind of being brought together here. Um, I didn't see anything in here that was super surprising or brand new. So I think it's just the techniques being brought together in this way. It might be the first time that ASEC has seen this happen and come through. What I will say, Chris, and I think you mentioned this, that PowerShell commands are something that could be easily caught. I'll just offer a piece of advice for every defender out there. If you've got PowerShell running in your environment or you're curious or concerned about PowerShell threats, there are some fantastic logging capabilities for PowerShell that are built into Windows. You've just got to turn them on in a lot of cases, and it's a script lock logging and, and module logging. And what this does is it captures really granular and verbose PowerShell logs and just, quite frankly, the best place you can go to write detections around this type of stuff. Um, the other thing that I took away from this from a detection perspective would be the series of events that took place here. You know, and I think we talked on maybe a previous episode where we looked at the kind of attack or delivery chain that an adversary or a piece of malware goes through and looking like, you know, where in that chain can I detect on something that's out of the ordinary, right? So running winword.exe is not malicious, but winword.exe launching a PS1 would be. So I need that qualifier to be in there. Same approach here. PowerShell itself is not malicious, right? However, if I have PowerShell that is being launched from MSHTA or from an ISO file or PowerShell that's doing something, you know, different, that would be the qualifier that I'd look for. So if anything, you know, and, and this is where I'm looking at reg ASM uh, being used as kind of the process is being injected to. This is where I think there's a really good opportunity for detection. And I'll note as well that at least in the attack chain described in this blog, that if you can catch that malicious PowerShell execution, you're much earlier before the Tesla and the Lime Rat and Remcos and everything get dropped on the system. So as usual, we're always going to look for earlier detection uh, points. And this is going to be one where I think the use of PowerShell is going to actually be noisier than the adversaries think. And that's probably what I'd focus on. Is this the kind of attack where having that memory dump capability on the endpoints is going to help defenders figure out what's going on? In some cases, absolutely. If you can catch it early enough on and you're looking to grab some artifacts out that you can use to either reverse engineer or understand further, and I'm going to take a shot in the dark and guess that's what ASEC did here, just based on the way that they've described what happens and how the attack flow works. I'm going to guess memory dumping was probably a part of their analysis, if not to maybe in a sandbox environment, right? But it definitely was part of what they had to go through. Um, but that being said, Memory dumping can be a really useful forensic technique. If I can detect something like this running in memory, kicking off a dump to grab those artifacts would be a very useful thing for a reverse engineer or for a malware analyst. 
And that's definitely a stage I'd have in my response here if it was something I was curious about. I would say if you don't have a reverse engineer or a malware analyst on your team, grabbing that memory dump, you know, would definitely be something that would be a great exercise to learn how the malware runs. But I would think a combination of memory dump plus like process blocking or process pausing or something would be another good way to drop in a preventative technique, but then also grab the forensic artifacts you need for a later analysis as well. The researchers over at Group IB have uncovered a covert business email compromise phishing campaign targeting Microsoft 365. The report details the operation of Well, W3LL, the threat actor behind a phishing empire that has remained largely unknown until now. Apparently, the threat actor has played a major role in compromising Microsoft 365 business email accounts over the past six years by fostering a community of over 500 threat actors who could and did purchase from 17 different fully customizable tools, all focused on business email compromise. This threat actor is prolific, having been on the scene since 2017. They opened an underground marketplace in 2018, which, over time, they have evolved into a full business email compromise ecosystem, which offers an entire spectrum of phishing services for cybercriminals of all levels. They have a customer support ticketing system and live web chat. Aspiring cybercriminals who do not have the skills to leverage their tooling can watch tutorial videos, and they even have a referral program offering a 10% commission. Group IB identified over 3,800 items sold via their marketplace between October 2022 and July 2023. Over 12,000 items are currently on sale. Estimated turnover in their marketplace over the last 10 months is over $500,000. This is where I feel like a broken record and say, how are threat actors like this able to exist? Business email compromise, which I know you care a lot about, Matt, is not the stuff that grabs headlines, but often these attacks do real damage to their victims. How can we defend against this, and how do we make threat actors like this a higher priority for law enforcement? Well, I tell you, I wish there was some sort of physical asset we could just absolutely destroy and take out this particular thing. Uh, This well panel, or, uh, you know, I got to say, reading through this one, I'm not going to say it made my blood boil, but it definitely got me very close to that inflection point there, Chris. You're right. BEC, business email compromise, M365 attacks. These are things that I've like traced for uh, almost 10 years now, just as if not more, as something that I've just kind of been passionate about. I've investigated them. I've done research on them. I've presented on them. I've helped victims get through it. I've watched victims not get through it. And it is just an absolutely prolific marketplace, as you called out. This is a a very dangerous threat actor. Um, as you mentioned, they have this thing that's called kind of like the well panel, which is, I believe, their most, uh, the yeah, well panel OV6, a fully automated private phishing kit with adversary in the middle techniques, allowing criminals to bypass the benefits of 2FA. You know, I, I think if anything, what this does is it definitely lowers the barrier to entry for these types of threat actors. And it makes it unfortunately a lot easier for them to conduct the types of attacks that they do. Um, I will say that if you read through the report, it takes a very large coordinated effort in order to discover these types of things and to bring them down. The problem is there is no set of signatures that I can go launch in my Microsoft 365 instance that says, okay, I am now defended against well. Right. The report does include some indicators of compromise as well as some Yara rules that can be used to find well panel phishing pages, but that's about as far as it goes. And that's no shade thrown to group IB whatsoever. It's tough. One of the things that I've mentioned when I talk about these types of attacks are these are attacks that often exist inside of an email inbox. 
These are attacks where someone will jump in and will intercept themselves into a legitimate communication, redirect mail to a place where the user doesn't know, continue the conversation, and then walk out with millions of dollars and things like that. BEC losses are to the tune of billions over the past 10 years. And we're not talking like, you know, 1.1, where it's just reached the cusp or anything. We're talking about tens of billions of dollars lost from reported instances. So you can already tell, right? I'm already super passionate about ending these types of things if I can. Where I think you'll find the most success with these types of attacks, and as weird as it may sound, there's a lot of, uh, we've now sometimes I've seen them referred to as like human firewalls, for lack of a better term, where I'm inserting processes in the human approach that kind of slows these things down. Um, you know, and some of them are very straightforward, right? Should you be able to change the banking and uh, account and routing information of a vendor with a simple email? if those changes are to the tunes of millions of dollars a year, right? The answer should be no. You, you shouldn't be as easy as someone to say, hey, you know, I now bank with this bank in Hong Kong you've never heard of before, but would you mind sending things over there, right? That, that type of thing is one area for emphasis of, hey, you know, I would go as far as to say, if we change any account information for any vendor or any supplier, I need to know about it, right? The other side where this gets a little tricky is the adversaries are, as we've seen in many cases now, they're not just compromising these these inboxes or these accounts and then just kind of using them for, you know, let's hope a, a thing works out, right? We've seen, and Group IB goes through this wonderful flow diagram of walking through these different attack schemes and stuff like that. Um, but we've seen things like data exfiltration, the reading of documents and emails and using that to discover parts of the organization and whatnot. Um, you know, they're talking about exfiltration doing, being done to email and telegram and local files, phishing pages, being able to mimic and go through MFA and being able to subvert MFA to the point where there's even some organizations who are like, well, if it can be subverted, what's what's the big deal? Why do I need it? Right. And I think what's happening, perhaps the biggest impact of attacks like this is that they start to undermine some of that trust that we get in the security community. Um, you know, MFA is not the answer to everything. It's not. But MFA goes a huge step of the way in defending against a lot of attacks that require single password requirements or, or you know, require single password usage. And you can't look at it and say, well, because someone can defeat this, I won't ever do it. Right. So you've got to accept that risk and say, I know an adversary can get around this technique. But I block out far more than I would if I didn't do it. Yeah, but automatically still, take out ninety percent of the threat just by implementing that's that. Yeah, that's it. Let's, that's exactly it, right? Let, let's 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 say our threats are our progress bar, right? And the more stuff I employ, the smaller that progress bar gets. If I drop MFA in, I might knock out seventy five percent of that progress bar. Now I still have to deal with the other twenty five. We're not, you know, we're not we're not perfect. I still have to deal with the other 25, but it's it's that previous 75 that we don't want to undermine, you know, and then I'll go deal with that 25, right? There are things we can do to get around that. We can uh, drop in like geolocation detections, impossible geography detections, um, phishing website detections, and there's all sorts of things we can put in place. But adversaries like this, they make it, they make some victims feel like, well, I, uh, it's hopeless. There's nothing I can do. Uh, they're just, they're going to get in, Right. And I just, I don't like folks having that feeling because I think there definitely are some things that can be put into place that can allow them. And a lot of times it does come down to the humans and I'm not blaming, I'm actually wanting to empower the humans as well. You know, 
a lot of times, and they do mention this in here, right? Um, adversaries will discover email threads that have financial information. They will push towards unsanctioned payments. They will push towards changing details. Chris, I think you mentioned the, um, or you might not have known, sorry, the dollar amount was the turnover on the website, but you know, these dollar amounts are very high. And unfortunately, these adversaries can walk out with way too much money at one time. So let's go back a step and say, anytime this stuff needs to be changed, there's a two or three step verification. You know, some places it requires four people to send a tweet out. And that might be a good thing. In some cases, you might want that amount of clearance just to make sure that you're getting eyes on it. And maybe we need to do the same thing for financial you know, transactions and changing of financial details. But Again, if you're someone who's kind of fallen victim to BEC attacks or you've investigated them, you know sometimes how heartbreaking they can get. A huge hat tip to the folks over at Group IB for releasing this and letting us read through it and see what this is like. And to the adversaries who built this thing, I really hope this makes your life more difficult. I do, because I don't want you to be able to walk away with this type of money. And if some of us in the research community get a lot more, a lot stronger, or I know a lot more about what you're doing and it makes your life harder, fantastic. That's a great day for me. Yeah, and I think this is exactly what they don't want. In the article, they're stating that when they were bringing in new new people to use the software, they were telling them not to sort of talk about it outside of their internal network. So the more light we can shine on it, the the harder it's going to be for them to operate. Absolutely. And they do call out as well that uh, Group IB calls out, I mean, that the, the well, we're going to call it well, because I'm assuming it's leak speak for well here. Uh, will regularly update its tools, add new functionalities, improve anti-detection mechanisms, and creating new ones, which goes to speak what we've said many times on this podcast before, Chris, which is they they watch us. They watch what we say about their techniques and their tactics and how we detect them and go around them and that kind of stuff. So here we go. It's now a race, right? We know about them. More people know about them. Now the adversary is going to rush to keep up. And then we're just going to continue to play this game of who detects who faster until hopefully one of us wins and hopefully it's us and we end up boxing them out for good. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm always rooting for the good folks. That's right. Uh, recently, NS Focus Security Labs captured a new APT-34 phishing attack. During the campaign, APT-34 attackers disguised as a marketing service company called GGMS launched attacks against enterprise targets and released a variant of the side twist Trojan to achieve long-term control of the victim host. APT-34, also known as Oil Rig or Helix Kitten, is an APT group suspected of coming from Iran. The group has been active since 2014, conducting cyber espionage and cyber sabotage operations against countries in the Middle East. Its main targets include multiple industries such as finance, government, energy, chemical industry, and telecommunications. APT-34 has a high level of attack technology, can design different intrusion methods for different types of targets, and has also been observed attacking supply chains. After this group's main attack tools were disclosed in a leak in 2019, it began to develop new attack tools, including RDAT, SideTwist, and Satema. In this campaign, they are sending out what looks like a legitimate document from a marketing company, and then when users open it, runs macros that extract the Trojan that is embedded in Base64 in the document. I think we should all be suspicious about attachments, let alone docs and PDFs. Is there anything to know about this one, Matt? Is this just a case where user education is going to make all the difference? I think this is an example where, again, we won't blame our users, but we will absolutely say that be careful what you click on, be careful what you open is going to be critical here. But this is APT-34. We've talked about them before. They, I won't say they're very good at putting together spear phishing campaigns, but they've definitely had quite a lot of documented public success about getting in. 
And I think that, you know, as we've talked about before, and I'm pretty sure we've talked about 34 before as well, they choose their targets. They know their industries. They know what their targets are going to click. They know what their targets are, are likely interested in, and they're going after those things, you know? As the blog post mentioned, this they've been active since 2014. So this group is coming up on their 10th birthday at some point, um, conducting espionage and sabotage operations against countries in the Middle East, right? They spend their time. They do their research. So my biggest piece of advice would for folks in that region or in those targeted industries, if you think 34 is coming after you or you, you, know, you fall in their crosshairs and things like that, absolutely. You know, be careful of uh, opening attachments. Be careful about deals that seem too good or wow, I wasn't expecting to get this email, but here we go. What a great opportunity it is, right? And then for the defenders in those areas, uh, this blog post from NS Focus does include only a few IOCs. I think there's only a couple in there, but they do give a really good description of an attack diagram, which shows the use of things like a scheduled task being created, um, an executable running that drops an artifact, reaches out to a particular C2. They talk about the document that was involved in this and whatnot. So I think there's a chance there for some detection mechanisms to be put into place. And similar to what we talked about earlier, I'm going to just say if a user is using winword.exe, there's a certain type of behavior I would expect that user to have. Mostly not dropping executables and DLLs or creating scheduled tasks. So another thing I would look for is those attack chains and working through them. So I think there's a combination of user empowerment as well as some good detection engineering to be done here. Okay. Uh, our final one for today is one the security community should be aware of. Uh, in January 2021, Threat Analysis Group, or TAG, publicly disclosed a campaign from government-backed actors in North Korea who use zero-day exploits to target security researchers working on vulnerability research and development. TAG is aware of at least one actively exploited zero-day being used to target security researchers in the past several weeks. The vulnerability has re been reported to the affected vendor and is in the process of being patched. Obviously, they're using uh, responsible disclosure there. North Korean threat actors used social media sites like X, formerly Twitter, to build rapport with their target. In one case, they carried on a months-long conversation attempting to collaborate with a security researcher on topics of mutual interest. After initial contact via X, they moved to an encrypted messaging app such as Signal or WhatsApp or Wire. Once a relationship was developed with a targeted researcher, the threat actor sent a malicious file that contained at least one zero-day in a popular software package. This one makes me want to put on my tinfoil helmet, Matt. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, first off, if you're a security researcher, I guess watch out who you're chatting with and whatnot, um, number one. Number two, you know, I uh, th this, this can't help but sometimes feel like a little bit of hubris. And I don't mean that. I'm not blaming any researcher in general. I don't know specifically who, who was targeted in this one. I mean, heck, I might even be friends with one, some of these individuals. Who knows, right? Um, I will say there's plenty of people who will reach out and, and you know, on Twitter and I'm, I get crypto advice, stock advice, uh, all sorts of things. And maybe every once in a while, someone will be like, hey, Matt, here's this piece of malware you should check out. And I'm like, cool, thanks for the free malware. You know, a little do I know there's more in there. But no, um, that being said, you know, jokes aside, uh, be careful who you're who you're associating with. Be careful who you're talking to and whatnot. You know, there's definitely a a throwback to the old kind of secret dark discussions we used to have only in person at conferences because sometimes you're sharing things that are a little too sensitive for the internet. But in any event, you know, I think this is uh, just another example of just be careful who you who you receive and share data from. Uh, it's very easy as a security person to be like, oh well, they can't get me. I'm a security person. I know what I'm doing. Right. 
And this is one reason why security researchers and security analysts and information security general, this is one reason why we ever don't, we don't ever shame users for what they did, because at one point you might be that user and we always want to get the benefit of the doubt as we go through it. So that's my first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is be careful who you share information with, be careful who you're going back and forth with. Um, and if someone is, you know, really insisting on sending you a file or asking you to download a piece of software or run through it, follow your gut, trust your kind of spidey senses, which is like, hmm. if I was in any other environment and I, someone was telling me that they were receiving persistent threats to or offers, if you will, to download or run a file or something, I would probably tell them to no, ignore it. It's likely bad. Let's do the same thing in this case here as well, you know. Uh, I do find it interesting that the adversary in this case was utilizing both X wire and Mastodon accounts, particularly on infosec.exchange and Mastodon. That right there, I think now it's not a lot, but it is definitely a little bit of research that the adversary put in. They know the communities where the security researchers are hiding. They know the communities where folks are active and where to reach out to. A little bit of research probably got them there, but that's another reason to just be careful about where you interact with. And remember, anyone can create an account on these platforms. They can buy followers. They can appear to be legitimate. They can talk about the same things we talk about, use the same hashtags, share the same interests. Heck, they might even go to the same conferences. You never know, right? But it just comes down to that. Hmm, this person, uh, you know, two months ago, we were just friends talking about malware and now they're sending me executables and asking me to run stuff and whatnot. Trust your gut in those senses a little bit. And, uh, Hopefully you won't find yourself falling victim to this type of thing. I will add an anecdote or here and just say that I've been in a similar situation. Uh, there was definitely an individual who, and this was years ago, but was really pushy about being connections on LinkedIn and getting me to review their resume for them and offer them advice and whatnot. And I just couldn't help but notice that that resume just kept showing up again and again and again, completely unsolicited. Right. But then I think by the fifth or sixth time I grabbed that PDF, did not open it, but performed a little bit of analysis on it. And sure enough, had a C2 call out inside of it. And that's one of those things where, you know, I've reviewed resumes for hundreds, if not thousands of people and assisted in some way, shape or form of legitimate security practitioners. This was one drop in the bucket. No offense to that person, but this was just another resume to review. But that pushy sense was just a little, that's what kind of gave me that, you know, that sense of like, something's not right here. You know, please open this, please do this, please do that, please do that. And sure enough, they were trying to get me to open a piece of malware. So had to be very careful about that one, but don't get me wrong. They were five seconds away from me just double clicking it and reviewing their resume for them. So I totally understand how one can fall victim to this. It's just about kind of trusting those instincts. And of course, if someone is sending you files and stuff like that, open them in a sandbox or in a place where you're not necessarily putting any sort of production data or your own data at risk. Definitely don't open them on that sensitive corporate laptop or anything like that. Open them in a sandbox if you need to run them through a malware filter, drop them off to an RE friend that you might have, right? Security researchers, we all know at least one malware analyst out there and just say, hey, here's the thing I'm curious about. You got any insight and let them run it through their process and see what's up. If it comes out clean, then great, continue the conversation. And maybe we were just a little paranoid, but I would tell you, I would rather be labeled as paranoid than to be labeled as the system that allowed the attacker in the environment. So I'll take the former over the latter. Nobody wants to be the one that sunk the ship. No one wants to be the one 
right? And 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 a few of us know who the one is in certain circumstances, and no one wants to be the one. So do your best, trust your senses, and uh, trust your gut feeling. Awesome. Okay, Matt. Well, thanks again for showing up this week. Really appreciate these conversations, and uh, I'm sure there'll be more interesting stuff to talk about next week. Can't wait for it. Intel channel, keep us going. We love, love, love sharing this content, talking about it, and we'll see you all in the next one. All right. Take care. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.